Hi. <laughs> Welcome back to Panastoria. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. Kevin and is also present. My iPad with all my notes on it just crashed. Fuck. <laughs> so we're going to need a moment. So I don't know if you can tell in the tone of Oh, we're a mess today. Yeah. My brain has just been mush. This is, we're a mess. All week. This is. And Kevin's having a grand old time. Yeah, he likes this. Yeah. Good. But anyway. Living our best lives. So hopefully you guys are doing well. It's been, it's been a while since we've done a regular Panastory episode. Almost a month. Yeah. So today we're talking about Mongolia, which I said to Lindsay in a conversation not long ago that Mongolia is a country that's probably either a lot of people forget it exists or never knew it existed in the first yeah, place. Yeah, which is sad. Yeah. It, it's very sad. Because Although I think a lot of people might know us know it for the famous cons, you know. Yeah, for sure. And anyone who's played Age of Empires yeah. will have played or risk. Or risk too. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that one of, is right. that one of the places that you can never hold it? No, well, almost. It's it's pretty close to Russia. Eurasia in general is hard, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is it? Um, Eddie Izzard's famous yeah. quote is... Uh, you always start in Papua New Guinea. The beginning, just build up and build up. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's not wrong. I mean, it's also like in real life also true because pretty much everyone who's ever tried to occupy Russia failed. Yeah, except for the Mongols. Except for the Mongols. <laughs> but they're also Eurasian, so they know what's up. <laughs> Another famous quote is, don't try and evade this place unless you're the Mongols. Because Yeah. Uh, so with that said, my iPad is back up. We'll see how long this lasts, but... Anyway, so since, unfortunately, Mongolia is in that situation, we thought we'd start off with just some basic facts about Mongolia, just to kind of give you an idea of what kind of country this is. So first of all, it's in Asia. It is sandwiched between Russia to the north and China to the south. Because of that, it is landlocked and literally needs to go through either country in order to do anything. anything. Yeah, It's not ideal. Nope. Its capital is a place called Ulaanbaatar, which is probably one of the coolest capital city names ever, just because of how unique Yeah, there's a whole is. lot of A's in it, a lot of L's. The Finns would be proud. <laughs> it has an area of 1.566 million kilometers squared, and its population in 2020 is 3,278,290. And 47% of that population lives in the capital. It is also the least densely populated sovereign country in the world with 1.97 people per square kilometer, which is about 5.1 people per square mile. Religious-wise, it is 53% Buddhist, 38.6% identify as non-religious, 3% are uh, practice Islam, 2.9% still practice shamanism, with 2.2% are Christian, and with the remaining 0.4% are others. It was once the largest empire to have shared common borders at 24 million kilometers squared. It is the second largest empire to ever exist after the British Empire. It was huge, and people probably heard the name uh, Genghis Khan, which is actually pronounced Shengis Khan. You may have heard of him. You may have heard of him, yeah. He was born Temujin, 
And he was the man who united the Mongol tribes. So these once warring Mongol tribes were usually bribed by the Chinese dynasties to the south to attack each other in order to weaken them. Well, Genghis Khan instead, he when he became the great when he became Khan of his tribe, he united the tri warring tribes and built they built a once great empire. And it became advanced in terms of religious tolerance, writing, and a, a practice what is known as meritocracy, which is gaining positions of power based on merit and not heredity, wealth, or otherwise. And it helped create the Silk Road between Asia and Europe, which was we're all thankful for. Yeah, it was in like other than you know providing Asian goods to Europe and European goods to Asia, it it spread religion it spread writing it spread all sorts of different things and tasty tasty spices oh yeah which <laughs> all of our cuisine thanks yeah and caused many 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 wars in the in the later years yeah it wasn't ideal you'll be surprised how many wars were started over Spice. spices nutmeg in particular <laughs> yeah or nutmeg was one of them yep he also had many wives and many children in fact today one in every 200 people are descendants of genghis khan interesting yep so there's a good chance that Lindsay and I could be related to him. Trust me, yeah. Okay. There's right. there's a good chance. Cool. However, he was a while he did all these seemingly great things, uh, he was also a very violent man and committed countless atrocities during his campaigns. Well, yeah, that's how you conquer things. Yeah, one of the most grisly thing he did was he would have prisoners of war stand at the front of uh, the battlefield. And when the enemy army came charging, he would have them all behead themselves. Good. You could... It's what you want. The word of the day is psychological warfare. Yeah. Yeah. By the time of his death, his empire stretched from far north in uh, Siberia, all of northern China, down to northern Iran, and into western Kazakhstan. And he died in 1227... How he died is disputed, but my I like to think is he is the story that he died after falling from his horse to be the one how the the way he died. After that, his successors conquered much of Iraq, Anatolia, and as far west as Poland. They would have expanded further, but during their invasion of Hungary, which was initially successful. Ogadai Khan died and forced the retreat to settle the succession crisis during this period. They attempted to invade Hungary again between 1285 and 1286, but they were beaten back. They were also pushed out of Poland in 1288. So by this point, the empire was falling apart. In 1294, the empire was divided between Genghis Khan's sons or grandsons, into four khanates. These khanates fell into competition with one another, weakening the overall strength of the empire. Kublai Khan established the Wan Dynasty in China, Mongolia and Korea, and basically by this point, the other khanates went off and did their own thing. Mongolia remained under the rule of the Chinese dynasties through the Wan, Ming, and Jing dynasties. So for a long time. Yeah. To this day, 30% of the population maintain a nomadic or semi-nomadic lifestyle. Only a small percentage of the land is arable, although a significant amount of their economy is based on agriculture. 
Herding is also a major industry along with animal husbandry. And in fact, they have a huge industry selling fine horses to all over the world. Mm -hmm. Their largest industry to date is mining, which makes up 21.8% of the GDP. And most of their mining goods go to China. So it's quite the quite the yeah. legacy in a way. Yeah. So uh, the official state or like name of the the or the state, I guess, of Mongolia around 1911 was uh, I'm oh boy, I'm gonna butcher this. Ik Mongolus, meaning Great Mongolian State. A new republic was was considered to be the successor of the Qing dynasty. Or, so the Qing dynasty was ruling China at this point, uh, and uh, Mongolia was more or less a part of China at this point. It was kind of controlled. It was its own country. It was, it's a complicated situation. <laughs> um, Schrodinger's, ruled... another one of Schrodinger's countries, I guess. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But it was it was ruled by the king. They recognized, the, the Mongolians recognized the Qing dynasty and they had princes and they had like, a, they had power within it. And... Is it King or Jing? Jing, I don't know. I think it's Jing. Probably. I'm Muslim. I don't know. Okay. I'm bad at Chinese. It's got a Q, so I... I know. It's yeah. one of those things. But anyway... But the new the new republic was considered to be the successful successful or the successor of this and ho- or of the dynasty and hoped to integrate outer Mongolia to the new republic, while the king or the Qing, Qing referred to the state as China in official treaties and implemented different ways of legitimization for different peoples in the empire. As a result, the Mongols considered themselves as subjects of the state outside of China, and the position of the Mongols was that their allegiance had been to the Manchu king or Manchu Qing monarch and not the Chinese state. So there's obviously some tension there. When they declared their independence, the Mongolian government around Bokshan replied that both Mongolia and China had been administered by the Manchus, but after the fall of the Manchu Xing dynasty in 1911, it was simply that the contract about their submission to the Manchus had become invalid. Yeah, Bokshan was enthroned as Bokshan, holy king of Mongolia, on December 29, 1911, and the era was titled, oh boy. Uh, elevated by many is what it translates to. I'm just not going to attempt that. Mm. <laughs> I think I can get away with names. I don't think phrases are going to fly. Yeah. <laughs> the Shanghai official in Mongolia was deported on January 12, 1912, in the presence of 700 Mongolian warriors. Mongolian troops arrived in the uh, Koved region in August 1912, and after an intense attack supported by the local people, they captured the city of Kobdo during the night of August 20th. Many Mongol leaders outside of Outer Mongolia sent statements to support Bode Khan's call of reunification. In reality, however, most of them were too cautious or indecisive to actually help him. The Mongolian army took control of Kalka and the Kovd region, but northern, northern Jing, oh boy, Xinjiang, Upper Mongolia, Barga, and Inner Mongolia came under control of the Republic of China. On February 2nd, 1913, the book sent Mongolian cavalrymen to quote-unquote liberate Inner Mongolia from China. The Russian Empire refused to sell weapons to, Bog, or to the Bogdkanate, which I think means kingdom. I'm going to guess. I think that's what I figured out. Anyway, Tsar Nicholas called it Mongolian imperialism, which is kind of funny, <laughs> um, <laughs> coming from him. <laughs> and the UK urged Russia to abolish Mongolian independence because it was concerned that, quote, if Mongolians gain independence, then Central Asians will revolt, end quote. Probably not wrong, but might be giving a little too much credit to Mongolia. I don't know. Um, 10,000 Kalka Mongolian and Inner Mongolian cavalry, about 3,500 Inner Mongolians total, uh, defeated 70,000 Chinese soldiers and controlled almost all of Inner Mongolia. But in 1914, the Mongolian army retreated due to lack of weapons. 
So it sucks because they actually really did a good job because, you know, the Mongols are good at this. <laughs> We've learned. But they just didn't have the firepower to stay. Around 400 Mongols and 3,795, or, oh my god, 3,795 Chinese soldiers died during the war. The Barga Mongols fought against Chinese forces in August 1912, captured the city of Halar, and announced their willingness to unify with the Bogd Kanate. And this is the signification of this establishment, essentially, of Bogd Kanate of Mongolia, and that's more or less like the same equivalence as the foundation of the unified Mongol Empire in 1206 in terms of like importance. So they, uh, you know, they started on the path of modernization. Yay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you're, Lindsay, say the name Boj Khanate. Yeah. It's Khanate, by the way. um, I might be wrong too, but Hmm. anyway, (laughs) the the Boj Boj Khanate basically was internationally recognized as a regional state in China, but internally it operated as a theocratic state under a monarch known as the Boj Khan which literally translates to holy ruler. The only Boj Khan to rule was the eighth Boj Gigan, who was the highest authority of Tibetan Buddhism in Mongolia. I tried to look up what this person, what this man's name was, and yeah. that's all that came up was he was, he, his name was the eighth Boj, it's either Gigan or Gijan. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, I guess the best way to describe it is he's similar to a bishop in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't mean, I don't mean yeah, to like don't kind really of know. draw those comparisons, especially if it's wrong. But yeah, he was the, but he was the um, highest authority of Tibetan Buddhism in Mongolia, as I stated. Its autonomy was actually ensured by the protection of Russia, who, surprise, surprise, had their own goal, regional goals within Mongolia. Yeah. It maintained a feudal system based on agriculture. The government was also a strange mixture with elements of Western political institutions, Mongolian theocracy, while maintaining Jing political traditions and administration. So it was just a complete uh, smorgasbord. <laughs> of, uh, I think that's the right word, but it was a pick your ideology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the city of Urga, which is, I forgot to mention, the the, the city Ulaanbaatar goes through three different names yes. during this time. So really bear with me, <laughs> bear with us. So Urga was renamed as Nislel Kiri. I apologize, Mongolia, which literally translates to capital monastery. The three different entities had their own goals concerning Mongolia at this time. The first, of course, was Mongolia. <laughs> they, their goal was to form an independent theocratic state of Mongolia with the territories of inner, upper, and western and outer Mongolia. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Yep. And as well as Bagra and Tanu Uran Kai. This was known as Pan-Mongolianism. And it was an irredentist ideology that actually remains in Mongolia today, albeit with little support even today. Just a quick thing to note, well, you'll hear the terms inner and outer Mongolia, I think a fair bit yeah, throughout oh yeah, this. Yeah. 
Outer Mongolia is Mongolia proper. Mm-hmm. And Inner Mongolia is literally a Part province. It's a province in China, yeah. yeah. The Russian Empire's goals were to establish influence over Mongolia while protecting the state's autonomy within China. So they wanted influence on Mongolia, but they did not want it to be independent. It's weird. Yeah. But they also sort of did that with China in ways like they wanted, they like, they were really trying to like be China's friend at this point. Yeah. Another thing like to kind of remember, all the Western powers had their influence in China. Oh, yeah. In some way. I think Shanghai was basically mm-hmm. an international city. Oh, it's why it was formed, essentially. Yeah. Like. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, there was the Republic of China. It was Its goal was to simply establish its authority over Mongolia and dismantle the state's growing autonomy. I mean, China's had its... <laughs> it's had its beef with Mongolia for centuries at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's like, especially really since... relishing this opportunity. Yeah, especially yeah. since Genghis Khan. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mongolia's geopolitical situation and Russia's political and foreign situations brought issues for their own goals. I mean, A, Mongolia is literally landlocked and doesn't have... Doesn't have anybody... Yeah. <laughs> support like yeah. even Russia who wants influence it as not recognizing its yeah. <laughs> its autonomy really they have no well, recourse recognizing its autonomy but does not recognize them as an independent or separate state the Boch Khanate's new leaders lacked experience to effectively improve the economy of the state because agriculture is not a major player on the international scale, especially when only a small percentage of your land is arable. <laughs> the new government being run by religious leaders frequently intruded on areas which the Qing dynasty established and protected as secular. Furthermore, the Khanate failed to, in the diplomacy camp. Tsar Nicholas declined to recognize Mongolia due to Russia's, at Russia's aforementioned objective in the region, while the Chinese Republic stood their ground in their stance that Mongolia was an essential part of the Republic. Following a secret meeting between Japan and Russia, the former gained significant influence over South Manchuria and Inner Mongolia regions, while the latter gained in Northern Manchuria and Outer Mongolia. The Khanate sent several letters to foreign offices around the world in an attempt to seek recognition. However, none of these messages were received or none of these messages received any replies, and the only successful recognition was from Tibet in 1913. The Russians became embroiled in the First World War in 1914, which became disastrous for the for the empire. Defeat after defeat weakened Russia's global influence and internal stability. The Russians' defeats in 1915, which in short were massive, yeah. <laughs> it drifted Russia's attention away from Asia almost completely. And this, particularly after the defeats in 1915, China began... To, taking advantage of the situation by working to reintegrate Mongolia into the Republic. The Chinese government sent, started sending gifts to the Boj Khan and his wife. As a token of, of appreciation, the Khan in return gifted President Wan Shikai with four white horses and two camels, while his wife gifted four black horses and two camels. All right. The two sides entered negotiations in February 1916, where the newly and briefly, reformed Chinese empire offered to bestow the Khan with the title of Boj Jevum 
Dumba Kutukutu Khan of Outer Mongolia and be granted a golden seal and golden diploma, which basically those two symbols recognize the authority, basically the autonomy within the Republic. However, the Khan declined, saying the title was already bestowed to someone else, and he already possessed a golden seal, title, and diploma given to him by the Qing dynasty. Long story short, the new Chinese empire did not last very long. It only lasted maybe, it lasted less than a year, and then the republic was restored. With the outbreak of the Bolshevik Revolution and the subsequent Russian Civil War, China once again moved to establish control over Mongolia. Bolsheviks had camps set up close to the Mongolian-Russian border, which worried the Mongolians and Chinese that the group were preparing to invade Mongolia. Furthermore, Russian communities in Mongolia began to openly support the Bolsheviks. The Chinese High Commissioner Chen Yi requested Beijing send troops to protect the border, and in July 1918, the Khan agreed to allow one battalion to be stationed in Urga. Basically, at this point, the Boj Khanate just gave over Mongolia's yeah. freedom, yeah. I mean, they, I, to basically to them, they're like, the fear of Russian, of, of red invasion was yeah. a lot scarier than, well, I mean, obviously the fear of godless communist yeah. were, well, I guess, anyway. <laughs> At this point, the Chinese occupation of Mongolia began, even though it's weird to say Chinese occupation because, I mean, Realistically speaking, Mongolia was still part of China. But anyway, the Chinese premier Duan Jiri began planning for an invasion of Mongolia during this time. His motives were sketchy. First, his reputation was taking a plunge after he failed to negotiate the return of the Shandong Peninsula from Germany to China, and it was instead transferred over to Japan. This resulted in the May... Fourth Movement, an anti-imperialist student protest, which somewhat turned violent, but that's an episode for another time. <laughs> the campaign against Sun Yat-sen's resistance against Beijing had entered a stalemate. Forgot to mention, at this point, China was kind of a very loose confederation of warlords. Yeah. With the central government trying to kind of keep control over this, but yeah. Very loose confederation of um, of these different factions all over the place. Sun Yat Sun Yat Sen's probably one of the most famous. Two events left Mongolia vulnerable. First was the Russian Civil War. Duh. Yeah. With Russia occupied with defeating the uprisings, Mongolia had no foreign power to protect them. And when I say uprisings, there was a lot of uprisings. Yeah. The Mongolian Prime Minister. Togs Ochian Namnasurin, I apologize for the butchering, died in April 1919. This left the ruling elite in disagreements over who should be appointed his successor. This in turn convinced several Mongolian princes to support reunification with China. The invasion became, uh, became the work of the pro-Japanese Anhui clique and received substantial backing from Japan. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Because, <laughs> guess what? A, a fourth player has entered the fray. <laughs> Are you keeping up, people? The invasion was meant to begin in July 1919, but the troop transport train broke down and they needed to wait for repairs. Classic. 
In October, 4,000 soldiers led by Zhu Xunzeng captured Urga with no resistance. A further 10,000 soldiers were brought in to occupy the remainder of the country. In February 1920, the Khanate leaders were forced to participate in a ceremony which proved humiliating for them. The ceremony required the leaders to perform what is known as a kowtow, which is a gesture showing respect, uh, to Zhu, and then the Republic of the of, of China flag, which was known as five nations or five races under one nation. The invasion caused some alarm to the other cliques who feared Zhu was gaining too much power. As a result, Zhu moved the bulk of his forces back south to defend his position, leaving only a handful of troops in Mongolia and without any leaders. (laughs) (laughs) This is like literally the clusterfucks about to begin. Uh, In the ensuing Zul-Anwe War, Zhu and his Duran... Zhu and Duran Kui were defeated and forced to basically give up their power. Which did not make Japan very happy. No. This brought in yet another major figure to emerge at this point, and it is a man known as Ramon von Urgen Sternberg. He was born in Graz, Austria-Hungary, and he was a leading figure in the Russian Imperial Army during World War I, and later fought with the White Army during the Civil War. He claimed to be a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, which was actually ridiculed at the time, but uh, however, as we previously mentioned, it's actually probably not that far-fetched that he was a descendant of Genghis Khan. Yeah. And it is certainly within the realms of possibility. However, this he was for sure a madman. <laughs> and he was known as the Mad Baron for his eccentricities and ruthlessness. Following the Bolsheviks taking a power, Urgen broke his allegiance to the other white army officers and crossed the border into Mongolia. After failing to convince the occupying Chinese forces to disarm, he and the forces launched two assaults on Urga in October and November 1920, both resulting in his defeat, and from there he retreated to the Kurlan River, where he just basically began preparing. Yeah. He supported the idea of Mongolian independence and gained the support of both the secular and spiritual leaders in Mongolia. The Boj Khan gave Ergen his blessing to lead the expulsion of Chinese troops from Mongolia and he basically took effective control over the Mongolian troops. A third attempt to capture Urga began on January 31st, 1921. Learning from Genghis Khan's tactics, he ordered his troops to start lighting several campfires on the surrounding hills, giving the illusion Urga was actually surrounded by a sizable force. It was not. But basically to say, while Urgen was himself a madman, he... Or Ungern, sorry. Un, well, Ungern was a madman, he was not by any means dumb. On February 4th, his forces captured a Chinese barracks on the outskirts, and in the following days, his troops began attacking the remaining Chinese forces until they reached the Miamcheng district, which is a Chinese trade area. His forces broke their way inside and began slaughtering the inhabitants and soldiers who were within with sabers. They were literally fighting saber to saber. Mm. <laughs> yeah. By the evening of the 4th, the consular consular district was captured and Urga fell into Ungern's hands. 
The Chinese lost up to 1,500 men, while Ungern lost only 60. Following the battle, Ungern allowed his troops to pillage Chinese shops and kill any Russian Jews that they found. Hmm. An estimated 43 to 50 Jews were killed in Ungern, were killed in Ungern's campaign in Mongolia. Ungern re-established the Boj Khanate on February 21st and restored the Boj Khan to the throne, declaring it an independent monarchy. After this, um, Ungern set about restoring order to Urga, ordering soldiers and citizens to participate in street cleaning and sanitation. Hmm. There was also a strict promotion of religions of religion as well as tolerance within the capital city of all religions but especially buddhism mm. you may think like ungern was a madman climbing for power however af after this ungern made no further attempt to interfere within the affairs of mongolia and only acted on the orders of the khan he spent much of his time leading his secret police and capturing russian colonists which is <laughs> Uh, subjecting innocent people to torture and even having them murdered. An estimated 846 people were killed by his orders in Russia and Mongolia. 100 to 120 were killed in Urga alone, which was between 3 and 8% of the Mongolia's population. Oh, man. Yeah. Ungern led the defense during the Soviet in intervention in Mongolia in May 1921. He was defeated and captured by the Soviet forces in August and executed by firing squad on September 15, 1921. Upon learning of the news, the Boj Khan ordered services to be held in his honor in temples across Mongolia. So he was very highly regarded within like the Boj Khanate. And um, as far as I know, not a lot of people know about him, except, you know, people who play the Kaiserreich mod. Fair enough. It's... This is kind of a tangent, but it's weird how like games like that, yeah, bring uh, attention, like bring people's attention to these weird yeah. characters and events. Yeah. So all of this was going on during uh, a second revolution, yeah, quote unquote. Between nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty, uh, a few Mongolians came to form what were later known as the Consular Hill and East Urga groups. So they formed as resistance groups, um, resisting the Chinese who were uh, in the process of essentially like taking over Mongolia and taking away a lot of their autonomy. Uh, so it's a period known as the abolition of autonomy. And during this period, uh, these two groups started to form and try and form some sort of resistance. Consular Hill owed its existence primarily to Dogsoyim Bodu. I'm just going to call him Bodu. Uh, a 35-year-old highly educated lama who worked in the Russian consulate at Urga during the Boshkan Khan era. Bodu was born in 19... Oh my god, 1895. In present... I have that as 1985. That's not right. Um, <laughs> Bodu was born in 1895 in present-day Tov province. He studied at the Manjuri Monastery and then studied at the Mongolian Language and Literature School in present-day Ulaanbaatar. He taught Mongolian at the Russian Mongolian School for Translators. He was literate in Mongolian, Tibetan, Manchu, and Chinese. He was exposed to Russian Bolshevism through his contacts and acquaintances at the Russian consulate. So his Chinese resistance anti-Chinese sorry his anti-Chinese resistance group became known as Consular Hill. Other members of the group 
included Korlugin Choibolsan, who acted as Bodhi's Russian interpreter. He took, shows up a little bit later. Uh, Mikhail Kucherenko, a typesetter in the Russian, Russo-Mongolian printing office and a member of the Bolshevik underground in Orga, occasionally visited Bodu and Choibolsan. They discussed the Russian Revolution and the political situation in Mongolia. Eventually, more Mongolians joined this group, and Bodu and Choibolsan advanced their discussions and began to talk about the failure of Mongolian princes and senior lamas to put up any kind of effective resistance to this abolition of autonomy. They felt like the people who represented them against the Chinese really fucked up and they weren't happy about it and so they wanted to do something. Uh, the other group that was also formed, the East Orga Group or Zun Kuri, were primarily made up of Solin Danzan, an official, an official in the Ministry of Finance, Danzwen Bilegin Dogsum, an official in the Ministry of the Army, and a less prominent member, Damdin Sukbatar, was a soldier in the Mongolian army who was canonized by communist historians as the Lenin of Mongolia after his death. So, okay. Yeah, there you go. Uh, their beginning as a group happened around November 1919, when a group of more militant members of the lower house of parliament, including Danzan and Dogsum, had a secret meeting revolving, resolving resistance to the Chinese. They approached the Bojkan, or Bojkan, or yeah, Bojkan, to obtain his support for armed resistance, but he counseled patience, as you know he would. They plotted to seize the army's arsenal and assassinate Zhu. However, changes to the travel itinerary of Zhu and the placement of Chinese guards around the arsenal, thwarted both of their plans. I don't really know why they didn't have a backup, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, they were kind of a failed revolutionary group, but anyway, they also existed at the same time as Consular Hill. Uh, Russian expats in Orga had elected a revolutionary quote-unquote municipal Duma, headed by Bolshevik sympathizers who had heard of the Consular Hill group. In March 1920, the Duma was sending one of its members, Sor Sorokovikov, to Irkutsk. This is in Russia in case anyone's not aware. Uh, they decided he should go see these Mongolians, and he took a report with him. He met with the leaders of both groups, and when he returned to Urga in June, he met with them again, promising the Soviets he would provide, quote, assistance of all kinds to the Mongolian, quote, workers, and invited them to send representatives to Russia. Now, Consular Hill and the East Urga group had not really uh, collaborated a whole lot. Traditionally, they maintained a large distance from each other. Uh, they were wary of each other and had different agendas, actually. But the two groups had a renewed sense of purpose and decided to try and get together. So the difference between them ultimately was that Consular Hill espoused a progressive national social program, while the East Urga group was more nationalistic in its goals. So they differed a little bit, but uh, they decided more cooperation would be useful here because they had some interest from the Soviets. So the two groups met on June 25th and formed the Mongolian People's Party, renamed the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. They adopted a, quote, party oath and agreed to send Danzan and Choibolsan to Russia. They arrived in Verk... Oh, boy. Uh, I Damn it, I practiced this. Anyways, they arrived in Russia um, in the pro-Soviet Far Eastern Republic in the first part of July. So for context here, the Far Eastern Republic, which is also known as the Cheetah Republic, was, nominally, was a nominally independent state that existed from April 1920 to November 1922 in the easternmost part of the Russian Far East. So... It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, theoretically, though, it was independent, but it basically just it became under control of the Russian Soviet, the R RSFSR, the Russian Soviet Federal Socialist Republic, which would later become the USSR, uh, which they envisioned Cheetah as a buffer state, essentially, between them and the territories occupied by Japan during the Russian Civil War. So they, uh, 
yeah, they weren't the same place, but they, they viewed this Far Eastern Republic as kind of like between them. You protect us from them. <laughs> they invade you first. <laughs> so Troibulsan and Danzan met with Boris Shimyatsky, then acting head of government in the Far Eastern Republic. He knew pretty much nothing about the Mongolians and dodged them for three weeks. But uh, they were demanding a speedy Soviet decision on whether or not to provide military assistance to the Mongolians in their attempt to overthrow the Chinese. And finally, they sent a telegram to the MPP, or the, yeah, the MPP, the Mongolian People's Party, in Urga, with a coded message that they should obtain a letter stamped with the seal of the Boshkan, formally requesting Soviet assistance. They actually succeeded in obtaining this letter, and they delivered it to Russia, uh, but, and, well, five of them went to Russia to deliver this letter. <laughs> and when they did, uh, Shimyatsky told them to go to Irkutsk because ultimately he had no authority. So, you know, there's a lot of much ado without nothing. Or much ado, yeah. Anyways, they uh, arrived in Irkutsk in August and met with what was later to be reorganized as the Far Eastern Secretariat of the Communist International, or Comintern. They explained that they needed military instructors, about 10,000 rifles, cannons, machine guns, and money. We all need money. Uh, and they were told that they must draft a new letter, this time in the name of the party and not the Boshkan, stating their objectives and requests. The petition would then need to be considered by the Siberian Revolutionary Committee in Omsk. A lot of red tape in this revolution. Yeah. They divided themselves into three groups. Uh, at this point, like the group of people in Russia had grown to about seven. So, Danzan, Lozol, and Dendev left for Omsk. Badu and Dogsum returned to Urga to grow the membership and form an army. And Sukhbatar and Choibosan went to Irkutsk to serve as a communication link between the others. Before they separated, though, they drafted a new appeal with a more revolutionary message. The Mongolian nobility would be, no, or would be divested of its hereditary power to be replaced by a democratic government headed by the Boshkan as a limited monarch. The document also contained a request for immediately, immediate military assistance. Uh, the news of Ungern Sternberg's seizure of Urga in 1921 influenced Soviet plans once again. There was a plenary session of the common turn in Irkutsk on February 10th and passed a formal resolution to, quote, aid the struggle of the Mongolian people for liberation and independence with money, guns, and military instructors, end quote. The MPP now had Soviet support, and with that, they were now a serious contender for power in Mongolia. Prior to this, the organization needed some help in the organization department, and so a secret conference was held in March at Kayatka. The first was attended by 17 persons, and the second by 26. The party approved the creation of an army command staff headed by Sukhbatar, with two Russian advisors, elected a central committee chaired by Danzan, with one representative from the Comintern, and adopted a party manifesto composed of the progressive Boryat Yamzragin Sevin, which is a uh, legal code. I don't really know what that translates to, and I'm pretty sure that I pronounced it wrong, but <laughs> it's a legal code. On March 13th, a provisional government of seven men was formed, soon to be headed by Bodu. On March 18th, the Mongolian guerrilla army, hovering at around 400 persons through recruitment and conscription, seized the Chinese garrison in the Chinese portion of Kayatka. Now they were really feeling themselves, and so the party issued a proclamation announcing the formation of the government and the expulsion of the Chinese, and the promise to convene a congress of representatives of the masses to elect a permanent government. The Bosch Khan did not appreciate this, and a propaganda war of sorts broke out. The party saturated the northern border with leaflets urging people to take up arms against the white guards, while the legal Boj Khan government barraged the same area with warnings that these revolutionaries were intent upon destroying the Mongolian state and were shattering the foundations of the Buddhist faith. Which was true. Yeah, <laughs> they weren't wrong. 
Um, the Soviets at the time, though, they were anxious to establish diplomatic relations with China. And so they had sent a representative to Beijing and China had reciprocated. Uh, and so there's some debate and it's entirely possible that the Soviets were kind of leery about helping the Mongolians or being too showy in their support of the Mongolians because they didn't want these talks to be jeopardized. But all of that went to shit when the Chinese, when the Chinese canceled their talks in January 1921 and when the Russian or, and when the Chinese rejected Soviet military assistance in dealing with the White Guards and Ungern, the Russians officially became committed to the Mongolian Revolution. They were like, oh, you don't want our help? Okay, fuck you. So, uh, an increase of advisors and weapons started to flow to Mongolia. In March and April, Soviet and Far Eastern Republican units were transferred to, the Ka to Kayatka, while the Mongols doubled the number of their guerrillas to about 800. Ungern Sternberg's forces attacked in early June, but he encountered a body of Red Army troops several times larger than his own, and the White Guards were repelled. On June 28th, the main Soviet Expeditionary Corps crossed the border into Mongolia, and on July 6th, the first Mongolian and Russian units entered Urga. Mongolian revolutionaries went to work at this point, and on July 9th, they sent a letter to the Khan's court announcing that power was now in the hands of the people. Quote, The disorder which reigns presently is as much due to the shortcomings of the hereditary leaders as to the fact that the existing laws and situation do not correspond any longer to the spirits of the times. Everything, therefore, except religion, will be subject to gradual change. End quote. The following day, the party's central committee issued a resolution declaring the formation of a new limited or a new government headed by Bodu with uh, Yetsum Damba Kutku or Kutuku, Kutuk, oh God, Kutuktu. They're like with the it's got the K and the uh -huh. T next to each other, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Damba Kutuku as a limited monarch. Oh God, that was bad. On July 11th, he was ceremonial ceremoniously installed. And that's the end of the revolution, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, like, the, one of the reasons why Mongolia was actually significant enough, like, why, why I feel we needed to talk about it, and, people, like, what people don't realize is Mongolia was the second communist country in the world after the Soviet Union. Yeah. How's that for a fact? Now you got a fact to tell people at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Going on a Valentine's Day date. Use that as your fun Use that as your, as, your, as your opening line. Opening uh, opening pickup line on Tinder. Yeah. Did you know? Did you know? Mongolia <laughs> 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 was the second communist state. Uh, we need to make Kevin a Tinder. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> the, but, like, obviously the problem is the Mongolia was, not, was grossly underdeveloped, especially at this time. And still had a massively spread out population. No industry existed in the country at this time. None. I lucked. <laughs> I was, I literally wrote in my notes, little to no industry. But everywhere I looked, it, I, I had to say, no. Like, no. <laughs> no industry was in, unless like agricultural, maybe. Yeah. Soviet troops, quote unquote, departed, because I say quote unquote because their de departure is debated, <laughs> in May 1925. They also signed a treaty with China stating that the Soviet Union recognized Mongolia as part of China, but China recognized the significant amount of autonomy of the region. However, the Soviets treated Mongolia as an independent state. <laughs> and as I'm pretty sure Mongolia is also seen as the first Soviet satellite state. 
I think so. I could be wrong. Well, they weren't really actually a satellite state, though. They never technically were. No. Because the satellite states were actually republics. True. That is true. And Mongolia was never a Russian or a Soviet republic. Good point. Well, I mean, like, what about, like, even, like, hung, like Hungary? Was hung, Hungary and, like, Hungary wasn't, Germany? no, I guess, I guess it depends how you defend, like, satellite states. Like, I guess you could, yeah, I guess you could say it's a satellite yeah. state. I, th- I think it was the first, unless you count, like, the there's a tiny, like, the Far East Republic and the other republic, which we haven't talked about, Tanutuva, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I mean, actually bordered Mongolia. But, like, I guess at this point, yeah, yeah. I guess, I mean, the Far Eastern Republic is really actually the first satellite state, but yeah. then it was just absorbed. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was going to be absorbed anyway. Yeah, it was always going to, it was in Russia, so it yeah. was always going to be. But regardless, Mongolia was one of the first, like, heavily influenced by the Soviet Union. It was the first uh, first state in the Russian sphere of influence. There you go. The Soviet yeah. sphere Soviet of influence. Soviet sphere of influence. We'll oh, go with that. Russian Stalin began to, to demand Mongolia begin the process of imposing socialism in Mongolia, which was done in three separate steps, because, you know, that's just what Stalin does. So are you ready? Because I'm about to go through Mongolia's version of the five-year plans. Good. So between 19... Interestingly enough, they were somewhat debatably more successful in a way, So, but we'll get... But here's what they did. So between 1921 and 1939, the government initially failed to nationalize herding and livestock raising. And instead of just, you know, try, try again, like Stalin did, they actually shifted their their focus into developing an industry of producing animal husbandry products and crop raising. The government also nationalized the transportation, communications, domestic and foreign trade industries. And basically create, created co-ops out of these industries. These co-ops were controlled by a series of Mongolian-Soviet joint stock companies, giving the Soviets significant influence in the country and also money. Hmm. Monks were forced into the army or to work different jobs in order to improve Mongolia's economy. Monks who were of middle status within Mongolia's Buddhist clergy were imprisoned while the high officials were killed. 600 feudal estates were confiscated by the government and were given to monks who left their monasteries. In 1931, the government began seizing property of over 800 religious and secular leaders. 700 were killed or arrested in the process. By the end of the year, a third of Mongolia's stock-raising families were reformed into communes. In retaliation to the repressions, herders killed nearly 7 million animals within three years. Just indiscriminately slaughtered them so as to not be used by, you know, the damn commies. The ruling party, which was now by this point renamed the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party, or MPRP, also began working to purge the monarchist supporters within the country, as well as Chinese merchants and other foreign capitalists from the country with the support of the Soviets. The result of the rapid collectivization, thousands were left starving from major food shortages between 1931 and 1932. Does this sound familiar? This further fueled anger within the country, which risked bringing it into civil war and even sparked an anti-communist uprising in Western Mongolia on either April 10th or 11th, 1932, sources vary. 
Unable to handle it themselves, the Mongolian government called out for assistance from the Soviets. The rebels were made up of mostly herdsmen and farmers. The uprisings were suppressed by November and the Soviets and Soviet documents estimate between 8,000 and 10,000 were killed in the fighting. In 1934, during a visit to Moscow, Prime Minister Pel Pelgidin Gendin confronted the Soviets for what he called quote-unquote red imperialism. This anger stemmed from Stalin's demands for Mongolia's government to purge the Buddhist clergies and eradicate the 100,000 lamas who resided within the country. As a devout Buddhist, the demands understandably enraged Gendin. And he refused, allowing the lamas to continue living and practicing their religion within the country. Gendin further defied Stalin by delaying an agreement of Soviet protection of Mongolia should they be invaded in, in 1934 and the signing of the 1936 Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation, which would allow Soviets, the Soviets to maintain a military presence within Mongolia. The final straw occurred during a, another visit to Moscow by Gendin in December 1935. Gendon had been drinking heavily during a reception at the Mongolian embassy and began loudly insulting Stalin during the evening. And yes, Stalin was present. Of course he was. He is quoted as shouting, quote, You bloody Georgian, you have become a virtual czar. Oh, man. End quote. Yeah, that's this guy gonna... had some balls. That's going to get you killed. He <laughs> had some major balls. Well, first of all, I don't, I don't think you wanted to call... To remind Stalin, he was, from, he Georgia. was from Georgia. No, it's kind of. A I bad mean, his start. accent. And then calling him a czar is another big dig. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also like one of the things people made fun of was his, was his, his accent. accent. Yeah. yeah. If you have you seen Death of Stalin yet? No. <laughs> in the movie Death of Stalin, the the guy who plays Stalin, he speaks in a he speaks in a like Cockney yeah. British accent, which I'm like that actually is perfect. Is perfect. Yeah. Chairman Choibelson called a meeting of the MPRP in March 1936, in which, um, during which Gendon was actually present. Their members confronted Gendon for his actions in Moscow, charging he was deliberately working to hamper Mongol-Soviet relations. This, the members then agreed to remove Gendon as prime minister and placed him under house arrest. He was succeeded by Anadin Amar. This act gained Choibusan much respect from Stalin and also gained him much favors from Stalin. In April 1936, the Soviets invited Gendon to the Black Sea resort town of Foros under the pretense of undergoing medical treatment for chronic medical problems he was suffering at the time. He spent just over a year there relaxing, you know, in spas. I guess it was like, a, it must have been like a spa town yeah. kind of deal. So he spent... Most, like, a lot of those towns on the Black Sea and, like, yeah, they are on the sea. They're, like, spas and yeah, health resorts. Yeah, they still are, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's nicer. I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, uh, he spent just over a year there before he was arrested in summer of 1937 during the Great Purge. He's After a series of brutal interrogations, he admitted, he admitted quote-unquote, to collusion with the so-called Lamalist reactionaries and acting as a Japanese spy. 
He was executed on November 26, 1937, bringing a tragic end to a rather badass man who defied, who openly insulted Stalin to his face. And as far as I know, so far is the only person I know who has ever done that. With the exception of Tito. Not really to his face. To his face, though. Like He might have. I mean, I I, Probably not. Possibly. To be fair... Tito also had numerous assassins come after him from Stalin, whereas this guy didn't. So, like, it kind of balances out, I yeah, think. Yeah, but he still got killed. Yeah. Anyway. Tito did not, though. No. <laughs> he killed his assassins. Yeah. The repression of Buddhism during this era was horrific. Buddhism was officially considered a superstition by the government. Buddhist teachings and shamanist festivals were banned. Monk-owned land was seized with shrines bulldozed to construct high-rises, factories, and roads. 2,000 abbots and monks were executed between 1937 and 1938. And by the end of the decade, only four of the 700 monasteries in the country remained standing. Furthermore, only 200 of the previous 15,000 monks remained able to practice their religion in the country. Well, they practice their practices, I guess. As the Second World War drew near, Mongolia faced significant threat from Japan, who by this point had established a puppet state in neighboring Manchuria. Between 1932 and 1939, the Soviets and Japanese fought a series of border skirmishes, which included the border region of Mongolia, Primorsky Krai, and Manchuria. The Mongols provided assistance to the Soviets and in the end emerged victorious and proved themselves to actually be rather formidable warriors. No shit, Mongolians. Yeah. Of all people. I mean, at this by this point, they now had training in, you know, modern weaponry. Eh, but the instinct is really what matters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the heritage, man. It's yeah. the ancestry. Also, the thing about Mongolia is like, it's definitely better terrain for like horseback. Oh, yeah. And there's a reason why, like Mongol, like Mongolian horses are short, is because shorter horses do better in rocky territories and rocky climates. Yeah. And also, uh, they're better suited to um, like winters in Mongolia because there is no grass. They essentially like fast through the winter. I think you're the like they're called steps, right? Yeah. S T E P P E S for yeah. those curious. And like the Russian steps essentially span from like. Volgograd, all the way east. Yeah. Would you say they're kind of similar to... The, they're, they're like the prairies. The, oh, like the prairies. Do you think... I, they're kind of in between prairie and tundra. Yeah. 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 It's like, honestly, like where we live, like in Alberta, you could kind of consider to be like the steps of Canada in a way, because it's... Especially where we are, because it's a high altitude as well. We have a proximity to like mountains and stuff. Yeah. But it's... Yeah. The steps are kind of similar to like prairies yeah very but much are so. a little closer to tundra just yeah depending on where they are though i mean like southern russia around the caucasus and stuff is not as cold yeah. as you know i mean further east yeah the other thing we i forgot to mention is another big part of mongolia's desert yeah. uh, the gobi desert is yeah part of mongolia and that actually was kind of frustrating for me because every time i searched mongolia I got the ads um, for the Gobi Desert. No, I got, I got uh, directed to the Mongolian death worm, which oh. allegedly resides in the Gobi Desert. So that was annoying. Uh, <laughs> side note, aside, um, 
Once Japan's conquest of China began in summer 1937, the Soviets stationed troops along the southern and southeastern border of Mongolia that, that August. Japan actually had plans to puppet Mongolia after the war. Of course they did. It wouldn't be until August 1945 when Mongolia would actually participate in the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. It's also the first time that the Soviets actually uh, participated in the, in the war against Japan. Yeah. Like, in the brief conflict between Japan and the Soviets, the Mongolians were attached to the Soviet Mongolian Cavalry Mechanized Group under the command of Colonel General I.E. Pailev. As for the rest of the war, Mongolia actually provided economic support to the Soviets in their campaign against Germany in the form of livestock and raw materials. Furthermore, over 300 Mongolian volunteers actually went and fought on the Eastern Front. But they were part of the Red Army. Yeah. So yeah, don't fuck with the Mongols. Well, yeah, don't fuck with the Mongols. I mean, why would you, really? No. They seem like nice enough people at this point. They're just minding their business in the middle of... Russia. Well, nowhere. they're between Russia and China, which are they're just two. in the middle of nowhere, really. Yeah, you don't really want to. It's a pretty like inhospitable place between those, like. Yeah. Like the climate and like the the Mongolia is a tough like place. Yeah, it's generally. It's not generally below freezing, but it doesn't get. But it's it, also extremely high altitude. It's high altitude, yeah. But it um, so. but like winters are, it gets below freezing. Yeah. Okay. And uh, like generally all year round, it I don't think it gets. It's like that a, warm. No, it's like a really consistent like. I think around fifteen to twenty degrees. It's like, gotta be uh, in the summer. Like it's not. Pro- yeah, probably more often fifteen than yeah. twenty. Um. Anyway. So the famous conference in Yalta in nineteen forty five. Is actually what provided the Soviet Union's participation in the Pacific War in the first place. Um, but one of their conditions for its participation, um, which they put forward in Yalta, was that after the war, Outer Mongolia would maintain, retain its quote-unquote status quo. But the precise meaning of this quote-unquote status quo was a bone of contention <laughs> <laughs> during Sino-Soviet talks in Moscow in the summer of 1945. Because yeah, is it the Soviet status quo or the Chinese status quo? Precisely. <laughs> so at this point, um, Soviet Union and China are still friends, kind of. They don't hate each other uh, yet. And in 1945, they start having yeah what are known as the Sino-Soviet talks in, in Moscow. Stalin insisted on the Republic of China's recognition of Outer Mongolia's independence, and after some initial resistance, China eventually gave in. I imagine Stalin's pretty intimidating to negotiate with. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair. Uh, the Chinese managed, though, to extract a promise to re- refrain from supporting... Uh, they extracted a promise from Stalin to um, refrain from supporting the Chinese Communist Party, partly as a quid pro quo for having given up, having, like, having given up Outer Mongolia. So... Um, you know, you win some, you lose some, I guess. But this was the Sino-Soviet Treaty, ultimately, and it guaranteed Outer Mongolia's independence, but also ended Choi Bolson's hopes for re- uniting Outer Mongolia with Inner Mongolia, which still remained in China's hands and still does. <laughs> Choi Bolson initially hoped that Stalin would support his vision for a united Mongolia, but that was kind of dumb, and Stalin had no real problem sacrificing Choi Bolson's vision for Soviet gains. As you know. Stalin does. Yeah. Um, and these were guaranteed by the Sino-Soviet Treaty and legitimized by Yalta. So he didn't really have to care about Choi Bolson and didn't. So honestly, kind of stupid of Choi Bolson to dream. In that sense, I guess. 
But this essentially marked Mongolia's permanent division into an independent Mongolian People's Republic and a neighboring Inner Mongolia uh, and neighboring Inner Mongolia of the Republic of China. So, um, but with their relationship uh, with Moscow secure, Mongolia then started to shift to post-war development, focusing on civilian enterprise. At this time, Mongolia was one of the world's, well, it really, it's kind of a dumb thing, was one of the world's most isolated countries. Uh, it still really is. Um, but this was, at the time, they had basically had zero contact with any country other than China and the Soviet Union. So, <laughs> And even with the Soviet Union, it's kind of, because that's a very remote part of Russia that it's the, an extremely, the borders, yeah. Exactly. Like, it's not even like you're talking with, yeah. So, I mean, maybe the occasional person went to Moscow here and there, but, like, Irkutsk for a while was as far as it went, or Omsk. You're, you're talking to the one Soviet radio operator who was forced to move to yeah. God knows where. The middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're pretty isolated. So they decided after the war to expand their ties. They established relationships with North Korea and the new communist states in Eastern Europe. So they hitched their wagons to some gems. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Mongolia and now the People's Republic of China, the PRC, recognized each other in 1949. And the PRC relinquished all claims to outer Mongolia. That did not last long, though. Because Mao Zedong privately hoped for Mongolia's reintegration with China. He raised this question with Soviet leadership as early as 1949, and after Stalin said, go away, he tried again in 1954 when Stalin had been on the ground for a year. In 1956, when Khrushchev denounced Stalin, Chinese leaders again tried to get Mongolia back and attempted to present Mongolia's independence as a failure of Stalin. (laughs) 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 They're like, oh, you didn't like him, hey? Well, guess what else he fucked up? Didn't work. Uh, Soviet (laughs) response was that the Mongols were free to decide their own fate, because, frankly, Khrushchev didn't care, I don't think. Um, Khrushchev had, like... He had bigger fish to fry. Yeah. (laughs) No offense to Mongolia, but... Really, they were not important at the time. No. Um, Sort of jumping... This jumps around a little bit. Uh, In 1952, Toibosan died in Moscow, Suspiciously, actually. So there's definitely some conspiracy. Conspiracy that Stalin killed him. Technically, he was undergoing treatment for cancer, but you know, suspicious still, I guess. I think um, it's fair to have like kind of suspicions when it's the Soviets. Yeah. Well, but... Stalin in particular, because Stalin was still alive at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. So uh, he was succeeded by Yumjagin Sedinbel. Send Bidal. Send Bidal. There we go. Getting my D's and my B's mixed up. Uh, I do that all the time. <laughs> yes. Sedinbel, unlike Troibelson, was actually interested in becoming a constituent republic of the Soviet Union. Interesting. Oh, so like a SSR? Yeah. Like actually become one, yeah. Hmm. And there was numerous, like this came, this actually came up a few times and there were some Russians that were interested at some point as well. Um, hmm. Could you ima- like, imagine if that had come to fruition? Yeah, I mean, I... I doubt it would have changed much of history, but... Not really. I don't see it as being a lot different than, like, some of the other, like, Eurasian... Yeah. Like, the stands, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway. Mongol stand. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I guess what they have to change the name to Mongolia stand. <laughs> um, anyways, that's a terrible joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyways, uh, Sembadal actually had an interest in this. But he was met with extremely strong resistance, so that idea got quashed pretty quickly, and he gave up on that. But 
Uh, in the 1950s, relations with the NPR or between the NPR and the PRC improved considerably, which is good. But uh, so China provided much needed aid, building up entire industries in Ulaanbaatar as well as apartment blocks. Thousands of Chinese laborers were involved, but in the 60s they were withdrawn when Sino-Soviet relations started to deteriorate. So uh, sorry, I forgot the did I I didn't I forgot to mention this in the podcast or during the recording. Did we say what Ulaanbaatar means? Yeah. Oh. That, no. that, this is my fault. I forgot to bring this up because I forgot to write it down. But yeah, they changed the name to Ulaanbaatar when it became the Mongols, Mongolian People's Republic because Ulaanbaatar translates to Red Hero. But yeah, uh, so the, about this, the, around the 60s, the so- Soviet Union and China started to diverge in their policies. I'm not really going to talk about it, but it's actually a pretty big split because they were the two largest communist countries and decided to not be friends, so bit awkward but when this started happening a bunch of the Chinese laborers that had been in Mongolia were withdrawn Um, and after the beginning of the actual Sino-Soviet split Mongolia kind of took a little bit to take a position they were sort of vacillating between both sides but eventually they took a sharply pro-Soviet stance Um, and they were actually the one of the first socialist countries to endorse the Soviet position in the quarrel with China so you know Mongolia to the rescue the Chinese started to build up troops on the Mongolian border starting in 1963, and the Mongolians requested the Soviets help them and station some forces in Mongolia by 1965, because I guess it was getting a little, you know, getting a little hotter in the collar. <laughs> uh, in 1966, with Brezhnev's visit to Mongolia, the two countries signed a mutual assistance treaty, and this paved the way to a Soviet military presence in the NPR. Um, after the Soviets and Chinese continued to quarrel, Moscow officially approved the stationing of the reorganized 39th Soviet Army in Mongolia. Mongolia increased its participation in communist conferences at the encouragement of the Soviets, so things like Common Form and Common Turn, uh, like we talked about kind of in the... Uh, we've talked about Common Form a few times now, actually. Uh, yeah, so they started to participate in these types of things. And in 1955, they actually made, made a bid to join the United Nations, but that request was vetoed by China, which maintained their renewed claim over Mongolia. <laughs> But Mongolia did officially become a member of the UN in 1961 after the Soviet Union threatened to veto the admission of all the newly decolonized states of Africa if the Republic of China didn't again use its veto. So basically the Soviet Union held Africa hostage to get Mongolia into the UN. Uh, Diplomatic relations with the United States were not established until the end of the Cold War, basically. Uh, Mongolia became a bone of contention between the Soviet Union and China. Yeah. Yeah. following the Sino-Soviet split because the Soviets stashed nuclear harms in Mongolia. (laughs) So, you know, there was that. By the beginning of the 1980s, Zedenbal had become crazy. (laughs) And uh, he became more and more uh, authoritarian and erratic in the 80s. And more purges happened uh, before he was actually finally expelled from office in 1984. He was literally losing his mind, too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was expelled on the pretext of old age and mental incapacity. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Not ideal. And the removal had full Soviet backing, so... uh, He got to to retire to Moscow and live there forever, so... You know, it worked out for him. Yeah. In the end, but... uh, Yeah, so... Sedenbal was born to a poor ethnic... Dorvud nomadic family in modern-day Uvs province. 
he was the fifth of 11 children in his family. Three of his siblings died when they were babies because that's pretty common. He became one of the first students in 1925 to the newly organized school in Ulangong. He graduated in 1929. And he, that same year, he went to Irkutsk to continue his education. So he spent a lot of time between Russia and Mongolia. Uh, he learned the Russian language, which obviously became useful later in life. In 1939, he returned to Ulaanbaatar and worked as a deputy minister and then as a minister of finance. In 1940, he was elected uh, the general secretary of the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party at the 10th Congress Congress, at the ripe age of 23. So what are we doing with our lives? Uh, And again, in 1958, during his premiership, he took on some minor leadership after Choibosan died and then successfully purged his other political rivals <laughs> and, uh, you know, became head of state. And he actually held this office until 1974 uh, when he became head of state, thus making him the supreme ruler of the Mongolian People's Republic. So he just purged his way to the top. Mm-hmm. As they all do, really. Yeah, he was uh, definitely supported by the Soviets in all of those purges, actually. Uh, and... Yeah, he did actually submit numerous requests. Uh, oh, yeah, he submitted five to eight different requests uh, for the incorporation of Mongolia into the USSR. So, uh, yeah. Apparently it didn't happen. Didn't happen, but... Uh, yeah, no, he was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> also, what people, like, a lot of people don't know, including Lindsay and I until we were recently researching this, is he was the longest-serving... Leader of the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. He uh, was in power for 44 years. Yeah. Is that longer than even any Soviet premier? Mm-hmm. That's insane to think about. Mm-hmm. But also... Well, I mean, if you think about it, the Soviet Union only lasted for 70 years. Yeah. So, and there was, like... 10 different premiers. Yeah. So, like, none of them lasted that long. Right, yeah. Really. I mean, Brezhnev, I... Brezhnev lasted a, a while, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna correct this later when we actually talk about leaders, but I believe Brezhnev was the longest serving. I'm, I think you're right. It was either Brezhnev or Stalin, but I think it was Brezhnev. I, I, I think, think it's you're Brezhnev. Right. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, but yeah, no, uh, or he was, uh, Sempadal was the, yeah, the longest serving leader in the Soviet, or the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. It's Eastern. Eastern. <laughs> it's ironic because, like, the Eastern Bloc, as we mostly talk about, is uh, Eastern, Eastern Europe. Europe, but, Mongolia. like, Mongolia technically really was the Eastern Bloc because yeah. they're literally in the Far East. Yeah, I mean, the Eastern <laughs> Bloc is more than just the, the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of funny to think about that, but... So, well, I mean, I think that's why it's good to do episode an episode like this because a lot of people get forgotten for yeah, and I just, hopefully you guys are enjoying this as much as we are. Yeah, I learned a lot for yeah. sure. I mean, I I don't really have a lot of information about. I mean, I part of this is really on me, but I don't have tons of information about what. Uh, life in Mongolia was kind of like, but I imagine it was really similar to what happened in the Soviet Union and things like that, where, you know, the economy stagnated and, I mean, 
Yeah, that's essentially controlled government. It's, that's exactly what happened in the eighties. It's 80s. just you know, know most of these countries essentially have the same kind of. Yeah, it all, it all was the same. There's a very it's particular a of, pattern. Yeah. Um, as you might have noticed, if you've listened, hopefully you've listened to all of la- the first part of the season uh, before Christmas. But um, <laughs> yeah, like I, as far as I could tell, life in Mongolia was kind of like a little harsh in a lot of ways because, I mean, just. Do like the geography and the climate and whatnot. Uh, also, having to kind of industrialize from scratch and rapidly. Yeah. But their their economy did fairly well because of mining and of course, like with the boom of like new technology and whatnot. Because a lot of these mining, like the things that they mined, are used in like computer chips and mm-hmm. stuff and coal. Because coal, you know. Pretty important. Especially to China. Oh, yeah. I'll get to that in a bit. So, following Sedenbal's removal in 1984, Jambin Batmunk took his place as general secretary. While he initially worked to continue to strengthen relations with the Soviets, he also helped improve relations with China. Because, because like as Lindsay mentioned before, during the Sino-Soviet split, Mongols relations with China also kind of suffered. Well, because in the end, they sided with the Soviets. Mm. Um, He also made improvements of Mongolia's energy sector by approving the construction of power stations in Ulaanbaatar, Erdent, and connecting the central high-power electricity grid with the Siberian grid in the Soviet Union, and by approving new mines in Erdent, Bagnur, which both produced coal, and Bor-Ondor, which produced gypsum. Inspired by Gorbachev, Batmonk implemented moderate economic reforms in the same vein as Glasnost and Perestroika. And in fact, they were actually called, in Mongolia, they were called, it was called Glasnost and Perestroika, the reforms. However, the stagnation seen in, the, in Eastern Europe had also occurred in Mongolia. By the time Batmonk made these, his reforms, the population of Mongolia had run out of patience and desired more drastic political reforms. The sweeping changes seen in the revolutions of 1989 had sparked inspiration in Mongolia. Soon, a series of events unlike what was seen in Eastern Europe would take place. One leading figure in the emerging movement was, I I apologize, Sagilin Elbejorja. Oh, I'm so sorry because I know this gentleman is still alive. He was at the Please time... Don't listen to this episode, sir. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> he was a 26-year-old student who was studying in Moscow at the time Glasnost was announced and implemented. Inspired by these reforms and upon returning to Mongolia, he began meeting with those who shared ideologies of democratization, which put him in the sights of the Politburo. Despite threats of losing his job, he spoke at the Young Artists' Second National Congress on November 28, 1989. In closing his speech, he said, quote, Our objectives are following democracy and transparency and contributing to Glasnost and supporting fair, progressive power. These are the objectives of an, of an initiative's group an organization that shall work. I know that sounds weird, how the, but that's how it's written. 
After the Congress, I hope we will gather and discuss with you about it in this newly forming group. The organization shall be based on public, voluntary, and democratic principles." End quote. At this point, the Congress, Congress's chairman stopped the speech and warned against making such statements out of fear the Politburo spies were everywhere. However, a dozen of attendees met with him and he agreed and agreed to help him form the democratic movement. The first pro-democracy demonstration commenced on the morning of December 10th, 1989 in the front of Lundbatar's Youth Cultural Center. In his speech, Elba George announced, it just sounds worse and worse whenever I say it. It kind of does. Yeah. Uh, announced to the crowd the formation of the Mongolian Democratic Union, or MDU. The organization then began petitioning the government to enact major reforms, including a multi-party system and the enforcement of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights on Government Affairs. This demonstration inspired people across Mongolia to begin the process of peaceful protests calling for the transition to democracy. The revolution officially began on January 2nd, 1990, when members of the Democratic Union passed out flyers calling for a democratic revolution. However, these fell on deaf ears in the government, and so the union began plotting more frequent and aggressive demonstrations. Thousands gathered in protests in Ulaanbaatar throughout January, most notably in front of the Lenin Museum in Freedom Square and the Sukhbatar Square in, on January 22nd. Lenin yeah. What's that? The Lenin of Mongolia. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, when temperatures reached as low as minus 30 degrees Celsius or minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit, protesters began carrying a modified Mongolian flag where the blue was a darker shade and had a communist it had its communist star removed. This later became the official flag of Mongolia. Over the course of January, February, and March, and often in sub-zero temperatures, demonstrations continued in the form of open protests and hunger strikes. These protests would occur every weekend. Furthermore, the, these demonstrations spread to the cities of Erdent, Moron, and Darkhan. On March 4th, 100,000 combined demonstrators gathered across city centers of Mongolia with the MDU inviting members of the government to attend. They did not. As a result, the MDU leadership announced a new hunger strike on March 7th, which went from an initial 10 participants to thousands. Meanwhile, the MPRP were debating whether or not to suppress the protests and even wrote a decree to do so, but it needed to be signed by Bat Monk, and he refused to sign it, saying, quote, We few Mongols have yet to come to the point that we will make each other's nose bleed. He then reportedly struck his hand hard down on the table and marched out of the room. Instead, Batmonk dissolved the Politburo and resigned on March 9th. Soon, delegates from the MPRP and MDU began, and it was agreed democratization would begin, and elections were actually scheduled for as early as the June of that year. The MPRP began to moderate its ideology and renamed itself back to the Mongolian People's Party. The MDU formed the Mongolian Democratic Party, led by Elbig Dorj. Interestingly enough, the MPP won the election in June, winning 358 out of 430 seats. So that's 
what happened? Mongolia is now a dem- democracy. Mm-hmm. MPP is still the ruling party. Party. Well, in terms of the parliament, yeah, they still have the most seats. Uh, then the the Democratic Party is uh, the the pri- president is from the Democratic Party. And there's actually, funny enough, there's a... Actually, yeah. He's served as president of Mongolia from 2009 to 2017. Yeah. And also uh, prime minister numerous times, too. Yeah. He's he's led a successful political life. He's still somewhat involved in politics in Mongolia today, but... Uh, I don't think he has any ambitions to go back into power. Yeah. But he did a he led a huge campaign against corruption during his tenure, which was apparently rather successful. So good on to you, sir. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. No. Uh, another funny thing is there's actually a, a new part, a newish party in Mongolia called the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. Oh my God. Yes. So there's that. But the <laughs> Mongolian People's Party, they're social democrats for the most part, uh, left-wing nationalists, I believe. But today the country just, you know, again, it's not something you hear in, about in the news. Yeah. Like ever, which depending on the way you look at it might be a good thing or a bad thing. Considering the way the news is going today, like nowadays, it's probably a good thing. I imagine Mongolia just sort of keeps to itself. Yeah, they mostly deal with China. Yeah. I mean, most of their my, most of their exports go to China. I think it's like over 50% go to China. Yeah. I mean, just from a size perspective, they really don't. And, like, they don't really have a lot of power. And, I mean, the other thing, too, is that being a landlocked country, they're pretty fucked. And that's traditionally, like, the world's powers are traditionally not landlocked. Yes. So they definitely have that. historical precedent for... Uh, yeah, yeah landlocked so, countries not being terribly successful sometimes. Yeah, they have that disadvantage to them. But as from what I read, for the most part, it's people I, there are happy. And then they have a measure of success because they just, yeah. Yeah, people there are generally happy. There's still significant animal husbandry mm-hmm. and breeding as part of the lifestyle. Like I said, 30% are nomadic or semi-nomadic. So and that, the reason why is because of, uh, because of that's, that's just the lifestyle that that's what they do for a living and has been for thousands of years yeah exactly so it's just like it's a necessity for the occupation that you have you Mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah i mean i'm sure it's also a lot of it is tradition i might be wrong but uh there's still a significant amount of the population who still live in those i think they're called yurts yurts yeah which are and they herd reindeer and uh yeah i watched a documentary about Mongolian reindeer herders mm-hmm. once because I always like joked that if I ever just wanted to give up on life like when I decide to retire you'll find me in Lapland herding reindeer yeah so that is true listeners when I eventually retire I will be in Lapland herding reindeer you can find me there or <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll end up with a with a radio station in Lap, Lapland still broadcasting this yeah Kevin O'Hara that. reindeer friend yeah um yeah, interesting fact is like going back to Mongolia's mining industry and with China, like dealing, uh, exporting mostly to China, it's the world's longest traffic jam. Yeah, was a result of uh, shipments of coal being t- 
get like being brought to Beijing, yeah. blocking, cl- clogging up the road. Hmm. Because the where that uh, uh, traffic jam happened, it's like the one of the only main roads between like out of Mongolia to another country. Okay. And that road get, is highly used by the by massive trucks bringing yeah. thousands of tons of coal. Um, so for uh, reference, the federal, or sorry, the Far Eastern Republic is um, like the modern day, like the Vladivostok, uh, which I think most people have heard of at this point. I would hope. We talked about it a lot in our submarine episode. Yeah. Um, Vladivostok is um, in that. It's now Primorsky Cry. But yeah, that's what the federal, that's where the early Far Eastern Republic was for, yeah, reference. Right. And that's what borders Mongolia. So there you go. There you go. Um, do you have a fact? That was my fact. That was your fact? Okay. <laughs> My fact is that... I don't like to make them uh, related to the episode, but this time it is. Yeah, that's fine. I'll just use this my f- fact. The Mongols... The, Mon- the Mongol Empire tried twice to invade Japan, and both times, most of, uh, most of their ships were destroyed by a typhoon. Hmm. And so they didn't try a third time. <laughs> both freaking times, and they happened years separated from one another so what are the odds of that but what like what are the odds of that it's like nothing bad can happen this time we're more prepared and then another fucking type Fuck. yeah and after that they're like yeah give up like yeah that's Fuck it that's it i'm out so they tried twice failed twice but i mean it's also why islands are typically like successful in not being invaded yeah should happen britain yeah. looking at you cuba cuba <laughs> Japan, Japan is a pretty fucking good example. Japan, yeah. I mean, Japan stayed isolated. That, that'll be an int- interesting when we kind of talk about Japan because of how long they stayed, quote-unquote, isolated. isolated. Yeah. They weren't completely isolated. Yeah. But... It's just like it's... invading islands is hard. Like, yeah. Just, there's a, like, the logistics is just, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I would say unless you're the Mongols, but... Even they could. Even do it. nature hated, didn't want them to take Japan. It's like the one place the Mongols couldn't get to. Yep, pretty much. They needed horses that could swim further. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but again, can't emphasize how actually. Well, also the Mongols were are credited with actually kind of bringing like if if it weren't for the Mongols kind of invading that, but Russia might not be a thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. They were so devastating on Kiev, Kiev and Rus that it yeah. kept Russia in the Dark Ages for way longer than the rest oh, of yeah. Europe. Yeah. So there's that. But Yeah. <laughs> that's that's Mongolia. That's our episode I for today. I believe we're going to leave you with some uh, traditional Mongolian throat singing because it actually is... Kind of cool. It's really cool, yeah. yeah. Um, kind, of, kind of similar to Inuit throat singing, but... It's distinctive. Yeah, I think, I imagine, I haven't listened to a ton of throat singing. Uh, I like Tanya Tagak, though. Um, She's pretty great. Uh, I think it all has, like, it's got probably similarities, but are all, like, distinct. Yeah. But have, yeah. Technique is definitely... Sure, yeah. And I think there's actually quite a number of similarities between, uh, like, nomadic Mongol people and, I mean, they're all Arctic peoples. 
really when yeah. you think about it. Like Mongolia is not in the Arctic, but they're culturally kind of similar. Like you can see where they would. Yeah, like in the like. I, you can see how there would be some relation. The Inuit have like they were definitely nomadic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- there is a lot of similarity in that. I mean, they lived in a lot more fucking colder conditions, but yeah. I mean. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of similarities there. So. Yeah, and I mean, and throughout Russia too. I mean, I think it's not actually an overlooked part of Russia is that there's a large number of like indigenous people in Russia that were colonized. Yep. Like the Yakut people and like different, different people who are I, I imagine are all relatively similar. You could probably trace lines like of the Barents Sea and stuff. Of oh yeah, absolutely. Canada's Inuit and different Arctic peoples. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, if you like yeah. what you hear and want to help us, uh, we have a Patreon. Check us out there. Uh, follow us on social media. At Panhistoria Podcast. At Panhistoria Pod on Twitter. Stupid Twitter wouldn't let me have a longer handle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see you soon. Yeah, we're going to be coming back with the Soviet-Afghan War. Mm-hmm. And basically after that, we're going to be balls deep in, in Russia. Yep. It's going to be good. From here on in. I'm excited. Me too. Thank you guys so much. This this is Jonah. And Lindsay. And Kevin. Thank you guys so much. Have a good one.